regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Alexa Grabel, the father and CEO of Pocus, a product-led sales platform that helps modern go-to-market teams turn product data into revenue. Pocus lets non-technical users access information locked into data warehouse and join it with CRM data to uncover the best opportunities and take the right action. Alexa's passion for product-led sales started when she led sales strategy and operations at Dataminer where she be internal solutions to equip sales team with data. She studied engineering at Vanderbilt University and received her MBA from Stanford University. So Alexa, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Fabulous. So I want to start our conversation a little bit with our personal upbringing. According to my research, I believe that you grew up in Philadelphia and you were raised by two equally impressive and accomplished parents. Would you mind sharing some of the formative experiences of your upbringing and their impact on your worldview? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I feel super lucky to be raised by two awesome parents that had a little bit of a different career path. My both of them were the first generation to go to college, so they had a lot of emphasis on education and working hard. My dad took the more traditional path in finance, whereas my mom was very entrepreneurial. And she started her own first physical therapy practice and then a consumer goods product. And I learned a ton from both of them. It was grit and hustle and working hard and no task is too big. What was really cool, and it didn't even cross my mind growing up, to see my mom as a female entrepreneur made it that I didn't ever think twice that I couldn't do anything because I was a woman. So I saw my mom crush it, which made me very confident about the adventures that I could take in my future. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I'm curious, what is your parents think of you being a CEO and starting your own company now? What is it? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of founders can relate to this. I don't think my parents know what I'm doing. They think it's awesome. They are proud of me. Product-led growth isn't something they're typically talking about, but it's been an exciting journey to go on and have them as mentors and my rocks throughout this process. So for college, you actually went to Vanderbilt and you study engineering science. I believe that during your time there, you're also part of the Society of Women Engineers, and you also spent a summer as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. Reflecting back on time in college, how would you describe your overall undergrad experience at Vanderbilt? Yeah, Vanderbilt was incredible. 
moving from Philadelphia to Nashville was obviously a change that was super fun, super eye-opening. Something from an academic perspective that attracted me to Vanderbilt was they had an interdisciplinary engineering major called engineering science, where you would get an engineering degree, but pair it with anything you wanted. So people would pair it with law or medicine, and I paired it with a business track. So this was very exciting for me coming into college, knowing I loved math, I loved science. My favorite class was physics in high school, but I had no idea what to make of that and what to do with it. So it's really nice to come in with this generalist engineering major and put a business spin to it. And I took pretty relevant classes. I took all of the computer science classes, but was also able to take classes like technology forecasting and tech entrepreneurship which ended up being very relevant for my career afterwards. So you come in and you already know that you want to study something technical with an additional layer of the, the business aspect on it, right? And that's why you set up on this major at Vanderbilt. Exactly. Coming into Vanderbilt and even throughout Vanderbilt, I'm not sure I knew that founding a business was possible. I didn't really know what software as a service was, I didn't know any of this. I just loved solving hard problems and being analytical. And so I, that's what attracted me partially to Vanderbilt. And it was an incredible experience. So I feel very lucky for that as well. So your first job out of college was KPMG up in New York and you work as a strategy associate. I believe you spent like more than two years there, right? And first of all, why did you decided to go into management consulting coming from your athletic background and yeah. secondly looking back at that experience like some of the big career lesson that you learned from the work consulting yeah now I realize it's a common theme of I didn't know what I wanted to do until I found things that were generalist enough and could challenge me and things that I would find interesting I out of college again didn't really know what I wanted to do but consulting felt like a really good place to start and learn the basics of business. I loved data and diving into uh, different analytics. And so consulting felt good to learn those hard skills, as well as the soft skills of how to be quiet and sing. And what was really cool to me was that I got to explore a lot of different industries or a, little, a bunch of different problems to be solved in a short amount of period. So for example, Early in the career at KPMG, I got put on a project for autonomous vehicles. And so I was expected to get up to speed as a college graduate on everything about self-driving cars. What that meant was I needed to do very quick research, ask the right questions, figure out exactly what I needed to do to be successful. And that type of ambiguity, while also being able to problem solve in those moments, has been very helpful for the whole career. So consulting for me wasn't something I would do for a while. It was not a lifelong career for me. It's not, I'm definitely not a consultant at heart. I'm way more of an operator and builder, but it was a fantastic way to start a career. So you really cultivate that problem-solving mindset and jump into different industry and identify the pain points and provide that the solution, right? So I love your about tackling ambiguity and cultivate the mass of just adding into uncertainty right away. So like those are very relevant mental models that you can apply yeah. for the rest of your career. 
For sure. Startups are all about having a lot of ambiguous moments and solving the problem for near term and longer term. So you spent about two and a half years at KPMG and after that, you joined the sales operations team at Data Miner. And I believe at the time that you joined, this is a legacy startup that is developing an app platform designed for real-time event and risk detection. How did this update come about? More specifically, like what did you decide to make the leap from consulting into technology? Yeah. So in consulting, I actually ended up getting pretty specific into the area of self-driving cars. And then between that and the previous work I did at Vandy or Vanderbilt, I knew I loved technology and I loved building and I loved innovative software. I also knew from consulting that it was a good starting point, but it was not what was in my blood. Like I didn't want to just be advising all day. I wanted to build and I wanted to execute and I wanted to work closely with the team to see tangible results. So I was looking for a company that was building something cutting edge in technology. I also was looking for a company that was very mission driven. Mm-hmm. And data miner was awesome because the platform literally was saving lives. You could read about it. It was incredible to me that something could be had such a huge impact around the world. And I also wanted to join a fast-paced startup. So I joined uh, around Series C, and I think it was around 300 employees. So I guess that's like a scale-up at this stage. But I wanted to join something that was moving quickly, and I could have really big impact. So mm-hmm. found this company very appealing. I actually had no idea what sales ops was, but I wanted to join the company. And so I joined that role and I found it exciting because I got to do things again with problem solving and things that were analytical, but also working with the rest of the sales team and the marketing team and the customer success team and ended up being awesome. And when I first joined Data Miner, it was funny. I joined not knowing what sales ops was. And then on my first day, the VP of sales ops quit. So I was in charge of sales ops in classic startup fashion within my first couple of weeks at Data Miner. So I didn't realize it at the time, but it ended up being an incredible experience for me, learning the skills of problem solving and handling ambiguity from consulting and just figuring it out on the fly. I'm curious, jumping from consulting into the technology, I suppose you, this are there two different culture. Is any learning curves that you encounter at the beginning of joining Tadamire in terms of just the pace, the, the speed of like how sure. the culture operates? What, what are those two? Yeah, I think there's a learning curve going from consulting to data miner and then data miner to Monte Carlo and then Monte Carlo to Pocus. As you get smaller, I think the pace goes faster and there's just less thread tape. So leaving consulting where I had multiple managers that I would build something and then get multiple rounds of approval before anything being executed is very different than joining data miner and anything I did build or said would be executed that same day. And so it definitely takes a learning curve to get into the mindset of figure things out, ask for forgiveness rather than permission, just execute rather than pontificate. It's a really different mindset. So it was it was a little bit of a learning curve, but it was what I was 
so eager to have that I was excited about the challenge. Like I wanted to just dive in and do it. Yeah. Like you're like, you self-select yourself for that environment, right? You, yes, exactly. I'm sure there's a lot of people working management deciding are eager to learn about getting the technology and these are the, the key things that they need to take into account when, when they would make that leap, right? Yeah, totally. As you mentioned earlier, like you lead sales up data miner, aspect of sales strategy and operation for the company. And I believe that additionally, you also start a women's group that brought in external speakers, organized volunteer events and facilitated lean circles. Yeah. So just reflecting on your one and a half years of data miner, who say you some of your proudest accomplishment? Yeah. Data miner was very transformational for me in two reasons. So first, I worked on a problem that ended up being very relevant for the founding of Pocus. So in this role of sales strategy and ops, where, again, had no idea why I was going into it, fell into my lap, ended up being incredible for me because I got to see, all right, what is the type of data that sales teams needs and the broader go-to-market teams like marketing and customer success? And then where did that data live? The data always lived in places that the engineering and data product team had access to, like Snowflake with Looker, our internal admin, but there was no connecting of the dots. So it hacked together internal solutions and ways to get sales teams access to that data, which really ended up leading to the founding of Focus. The second thing that was transformational for me was we talked earlier about my parents and growing up and how that affected my mindset. And growing up, I always thought women and men are equal. Both my parents work. They're both doing really cool things. And then when I got into engineering and then consulting and then data miner, I realized that in engineering, consulting, and tech, it's not equal. And you look up at a lot of executive team leaders and it's not, there, there is gender inequality still. And so I used my frustration there to build data miners first women's group. And it ended up being really successful. There were hundreds of people ended up by the time I left across the globe and lots of other ERGs started as well. And it became a really, first of all, it became a great community, which is community has also become part of my kind of passions and continue to build communities throughout my career, which we can talk about. And it also created a really safe and authentic and genuine space for other women to feel comfortable sharing what's on their mind and looking up to others to help them grow in their career. So I'm very grateful for my experience as a data miner, allowing me to explore both of these things. Absolutely. Thanks for providing the context. I just want to quickly go a bit deeper into both of those things, just to flush out a bit of the details. So you mentioned about a hacking internal solution to help sales team identify leads that can help with the product. Yeah. Like, what was the thought process look like? What did it become such a pain point that you felt like this is something that like the whole industry needs? Yeah. So at the time, I remember just being so shocked that sales reps had had Salesforce and that was it. So all of the data that they wanted to see about a customer was in Salesforce. So that's things like the ACV and contract size and the stage of sales cycle and industry and all that information. And then if they wanted to figure out data around how users are engaging, the data miner product to help inform 
how to close a trial or how to drive upsell or expansion or renewals. They had somewhat access to this information through an internal admin portal, but that admin portal is not built for a salesperson. So it's confusing. It's clunky. Everyone knows their own internal admin portals are not the best. And then when I was there, we just started implementing Snowflake and Looker. And I remember one of the funniest moments was when there was 30 of us in a room applauding at the Looker account managers because we were so excited to have this data. But Looker is still not built for a salesperson. That was for the data team and the product team and the engineering team. Um, And so it was just really shocking to me being able to sit in between and have exposure to the product and engineering side of the world, uh, as well as the sales, just the lack of tooling that's available, data tooling for salespeople. Uh, And I, at the time, I'm like, huh, this can't just be a data miner thing. There must be a solution. I remember Googling a solution to try to figure this out. And I... And we can get into more in the ideation phase, but I spent three months interviewing around 300 different teams around how they solve this problem. And everyone's answer was, we don't have a solution. We're doing something internal and it's really hacky and not scaled. Yeah, we will definitely talk about that ideation phase just a bit later on when we talk about your time at Stanford. But it sounds like you being that bridge between the sales team and the production ERD and being able to understand the needs and the offerings of both of these persona. And that's why you be able to identify this, that bottleneck and then yeah. figure out that there must be something that exists that doesn't require a human intervention. Yep, exactly. And that second part about starting this woman's group and sort of the whole journey up until this point, I suppose that a minor, quite a big company. At this point, what was what does that process look like of starting like that group? Yeah, building communities is actually very similar processes, whether it's a women's group or mm-hmm. we can talk about the fund I built with that community. We can talk about the Pocus community. It's all just bringing like-minded people together who are hungry to learn and hungry to give back and hungry to meet others similar mm-hmm. to them that are experiencing the same problems, that are going through the same things in their life. And so what we did, there's some simple things to do. You bring people together in larger group settings where it's actually funny, now that I think about it, very similar to what I do with POCUS is we brought everyone together once or twice a month, all the women, and we had a different women speaker. It was someone on the executive team, someone who's leading another big team at Data Miner. We brought in, I brought in external speakers as well. And it was AMA stuff. Just let's hear about what your life is. And sometimes they were very emotional. It was one battling, talked about her experience battling cancer and having children and really while managing a huge team at a billion dollar company. And then others were more tactical. Like, how do you make sure that your voice is heard in a room of 15 other men? And we did a lot of other things like volunteer events and smaller group, lean-in circles, but this is also very similar to what I do with the focus community. Bring people together, have AMAs. And people just really, if you take a spin to it, that's authentic and genuine. And really, I, it's what drives me. So it was easy for me to be authentic and genuine and connecting others. It was, it felt good for everyone to be able to be themselves and learn from others and find mentors or mentees or peers that were going through similar things. 
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that journey, the sort of community building playbook we we'll talk about a bit later on, except not just a intellectual circle, but more also like a support group when everyone can yeah. vulnerable and authenticity. I appreciate it. Definitely. After Dana Minor, you went to business school at Stanford, GSB, to get an MBA there. And according to my research, during your time there, you also served as a fellow at PABC, a vice president of the Women in Management Group, and a founder and GP at a 21 Fund. What first of all, like, motivated you to go to business school? And also, how did all these different engagement affect your Stanford experience? Yeah. It's a great question. And I went back and forth with whether I should go to business school or not a lot of times. And I'm beyond grateful and thankful that I made the decision to go. But my goal for going was truly around this fact that I just wanted to make a difference for women in tech and figure out a way to empower future generations of women. And I felt like I could do something and I wasn't reaching my full potential of it yet. And so my hypothesis, knowing very little about what venture capital was that I was going to become a venture capitalist and I was going to invest in female founders. And so I went to business school and I did everything I could at the intersection of empowering women and diving into VC that first year. And I was a fellow for VC fund. I started a fund called the 21 Fund where we raised $2 million from our classmates, and we've so far invested in about 25 of them and created a whole platform team around that. And while I was doing all this stuff, it was funny. I ended up getting almost jealous of the founders, and I would spend more time with them and get more energized of getting in the weeds with them around their path to product market fit and how to gain traction and the scrappy things to do versus making investment decisions. And I realized... I could also be following my initial passion of if I went the founder route of, yes, I can totally empower future generations of women. I can create my own company with its own culture and values that reflect what I wish I could see when I was first coming out of college. And I can empower future generations of women that work for Focus or other companies that see that other female founders can do it. They can become a founder, even if it's in a data or sales world where literally all men. So that was my journey into VC and out of VC pretty quickly. Thanks for providing that context. Really, with the vision, the mission is the same, which is to empower women. The next generation in the future, like the, the path to get to that vision is like, went to a couple of iterations until I sat down this. And when you say you, you become jealous of the fathers, you, you're talking about the fathers, Joe classmate, like 21 Fun, as well as the people you yeah. have different engagement, right? Yeah, so Stanford does an incredible job of, you know, offering a lot of entrepreneurial options and mm. almost breeding classes of entrepreneurs and founders. Mm. But while I was a fellow at also starting the fund, I spent a lot of time with founders, just meeting them for a coffee or going on walks, hearing about the problem, seeing how I can help them, see how I can make introductions. And that's when I got realized where I was getting energy was really friend building. And I am much more of a builder and operator. I think that it's a mindset shift. It's some people are really good at investing. Some people are really good at operating. I don't think there's that many can do both. I'd say I'd be a very bad investor and a very good operator and builder. 
can you elaborate on that part a bit more? What is the mindset looks like for an investor versus for an operator? Yeah, there's of course overlapping similarities, especially in early stage tech, where you need to be really passionate about emerging technologies and know everything about what's going on and know the right people and be networking all the time. And there's overlapping things. It's the question of, do you want to learn a little bit about everything or do you want to learn everything about one thing? I, and then, so that's one part. And in that example, I like going very deep on one thing and knowing everything inside and out versus a little bit of everything. And then the second is, would you rather strategize and think and advise, which also gets into the overlap of the consulting world, or do you like to build things, test, iterate, execute? And so it's a different mindset. It's a different skill set. Both are very hard to do. Both are very awesome careers. I think it's just a different, it's a totally different career. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that the differences. Like the mindset is very wide angle lens, it's just like very narrow lens. And then the skill set is strategy advice versus execute and develop, right? Yep, exactly. Perfect. Thanks for sharing a bit of your spend at Stanford. And I believe that during your time there, you also spent the summer as a growth intern at Monte Carlo, which I believe at a very early stage at the time in 2020. So can you share some of the key learnings from that experience? Yeah, Monte Carlo was incredible. So I joined Monte Carlo at Series A, which is the same stage that Pocus is now. And it definitely confirmed my hypotheses that I wanted to be a founder. Working with Bar Moses, who's the CEO of Monte Carlo, was awesome. She showed me what a very high-performing, fast-paced startup the Series A stage looks like. I think she's one of the best founders and CEOs out there. One thing that I've learned a ton from her, but one thing that I really have taken away and use her motto in my team is her motto on ship and iterate and just continue to move quickly, move in 30-minute increments. Don't think about perfectionism. Think about lots of cycles and iterations. Very lucky to have worked with Barr and now have her as a mentor and investor in Focus. What, what does ship and iterate actually look like? If you can provide an example. Yeah. You work on, yeah. Yes. And so I can tell you how we do it at Focus. So if we have a project, let's say that we are, to keep it simple, writing out our customer journey and we want to figure out what does our customer journey look like? This is a real example. Instead of spending three days in multiple sessions, brainstorming and whiteboarding and ideating, which we can do as well, it's, okay, let's take a first pass on it. Let's have everyone just spend 30 minutes, write what it is, and then get other people to give ideas and say, oh, this is on track. This is not on track. Let's iterate here. Let's experiment here. Let's hypothesize here. Rather than sitting in your own silo, just try to figure out answers and spinning your wheels. It's consistent iteration and feedback. I remember Barr said to me, can you draft up one of our investor updates? Remember her pinging me on Slack 30 minutes later saying, where's the draft version? And I said, at first, I thought that was crazy. <laughs> uh, but I got it. She just wanted an outline. She wanted to keep getting the feedback. And I do the same thing to my team now. So I appreciate that learning from her. I see. So just get something done quickly. So you build the momentum of getting started with it. Exactly. Thanks for sharing the context. Since April 2021, and this is the fun part for the rest of the conversation, 
We have been the co-founder and CEO of Pocus, the first product-less platform that helps modern go-to-market teams turn product data into revenue. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Definitely. So while I was at Stanford, I met my co-founder, Isaac, and we applied to a class called Lean Launch Trad, where they essentially incubate 10 different teams across Stanford schools, engineering, business school, et cetera. So Isaac and I spent three months talking to hundreds of go-to-market teams to validate our hypotheses around what I saw at data miner, where there's non-technical teams like sales and customer success and marketing that don't have access to the powerful data like product usage that lives in places like the data warehouse. And over that three-month period, it became very clear that this was a huge hair and fire problem that needed solving. And it became clear that it was an extra huge problem at product-led growth companies where they have tons of users on the product, tons of usage data. So that becomes absolutely vital to drive revenue and figure out who are the best users that I can then convert to a sales opportunity. So there was definitely that pull moment where we were getting interest from customers and investors and everyone to say, build this thing. So it felt like this is like we were being called to build it. And how did you find these go-to-market teams to talk to? And like, how did you categorize them? And what are the questions that you've asked? A lot of people asked me this. I did not have a strong network coming into Stanford. So I was sending hundreds of cold LinkedIn DMs every single week. I think that is a common misconception of early stage founders that they can just buy some auto tool and reach out to five people and all five people will answer you. It's the same thing with recruiting. Mm -hmm. I was literally spending my nights and weekends on LinkedIn, cold reaching out to people and finding every single angle that I could reach out to sales leaders. We also, Isaac and I, were very diligent about our hypothesis testing. So every single week we had a different hypothesis on Monday. And then throughout the week, we had 10 to 15 interviews. Then we'd validate that hypothesis by the end of the week and say, okay, we're going to double click into it or we're going to scrap that altogether. So it was intense, but very validating and very helpful for the early founding moment. Yeah. Just for grit and resilience and then putting the time into getting insights valid very quickly. Yeah. I'll say people think that early state being an early stage founder is very sexy and fun and I'm having a lot of fun, but they think it's this. Something that it's not. What it is, it's spending a lot of time cold DMing people on LinkedIn. Oh, I was, <laughs> I talked to probably 30 people in the engineering school at Stanford. And Isaac was the one person I wanted to work with. So I was selling Isaac. And he was very hard to get. It was funny. My roommates were all talking to him too as co-founder. So everyone in the business school was fighting over Isaac as the co-founder from a technical side. And it's because of a couple of things that I can narrow down to. One, this is his third company. So he started his first company when he was 12. It was a gaming company. It was the fourth, fourth biggest game on Minecraft. And he was managing 20 engineers at 12 years old. So he is extremely mature. He's probably the best engineer I've ever worked with. Just an incredible engineer, but also an incredible leader. And then also we have very similar goals and vision and alignment how we want to build a team, who we want to work with, what we want focus to look like in the future. I knew pretty on that I wanted to work with Isaac. It took 
a while of me selling him to, to work with me. And now we feel very lucky. I think that the co-founder relationship drives the success of the company and I couldn't be luckier to have Isaac. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that anecdote. I think this is the most important relationship that you have in terms of you know, standing company and interesting your right co-founder. It's just crucial to ensure the success long-term the startup, right? Yeah. So let's talk a bit deeper into the actual product and the whole category that you have created here. Yeah. So product-led sales is a go-to-market approach that relies on existing users, the product to drive revenue, including conversion, upsell, cross-sell, and expansion. Why is there a need to layer sales on top of a product-led promotion? Yeah, so when I was starting Pocus last year, last April, there was this myth that product-led growth companies or companies that have a self-serve option or premium model where the product could sell itself didn't have a sales team. You can think Slack and Notion and Calendly and Airtable and the bigger companies like Dropbox and Lassian. This myth, I think over the past year with the help of our category creation and content has been busted in the fact that PLG companies all have and need sales teams. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is users can engage with a PLG company's product without talking to human, which is great. But they then get to a point where they users will crave to talk to a human or a sales rep to discuss things like, how can I upgrade? What are my options? How do I have centralized biz- billing across the whole enterprise? What are the security procedures you have in place? And so that's where a salesperson has to come in. So, and then if you look at all these most successful companies like Dropbox, Slack, and Lassie, and they have huge sales teams. It's, there's a huge need to layer sales on top of the PLG motion. And when you do, it's, you, when you're able to layer sales on top of the healthy self-serve flywheel, you're setting your company up for extreme success. You can use those users from the product-led growth motion as a funnel for your converging and upselling expansion. Yeah. And I think we also put in a fair bit of content related to like when is the right time to add this sales layer, right? Well, you provide a little bit of insights on that at what stage of the PRG maturity that company is thinking about hiring enterprise sales leaders. Yeah, there's this is a very lots of people have different opinions on this topic. So I've heard very quantitative answers of you should add sales on top of PLG when you hit this sort of revenue marker or this many people in the company. I like to think about it when you feel the pull from your customer. So when you are a at a PLG company and you're starting to get requests that go from more of a support request to a sales request. What I mean by that is you're not getting questions anymore that are like, how do I reset my password? The questions are like, how do I create one license because five teams at my company are all using this product and I want to centralize it? That is a sales conversation. Mm-hmm. And so it is driven almost by the end user to say, when is that happening where we need to have salespeople to interact with the end user at the right time? I see. What Pocus does is a process platform that can help our go-to-market teams with four core capabilities, data, insights, scoring, and workflow or made possible by no-code interface. Would you mind giving a product tour of how Pocus works? Yeah, definitely. I can uh, 
walk you through, there's a variety of different use cases for focus, but I'll walk you through two common ones, how to use this product. So the first example I'll give you is let's pretend that you are an AE or account executive and you're responsible for selling to enterprise customers. So before Pocus, what you do is you would have to dig through Looker and Mode and Intercom and Salesforce to find potentially good opportunities that need to go from the self-serve option or lowered pricing tier to an enterprise consolidation. But with Pocus, the process is way quicker and way more data-driven. You would receive a Slack alert from Pocus saying, for example, Nike's become a product qualified lead. And that AE who's in charge of the Nike territory would be able to research in Slack or open up the Pocus dashboard from Slack to see why it's a product qualified lead. And for example, it might say five different teams at Nike are using Slack and there's a decision, a senior decision maker on the product and usage had spiked over the last week. And so as the AE at Slack, you'll dig in to learn more about the teams on the product, the users on the product, figure out the right person to reach out to with the right message. So you can send a personalized outreach. Hey, we see that five teams are using the product. They love these channels. They love XYZ. Have you thought about ABC? And you can send this email to the decision maker as well to create an opportunity directly in Salesforce from Pocus. So everything you can go from insight to action in Pocus. The second example I can give you is more from the RevOps and growth perspective. So you are maybe a RevOps leader at Slack and you're in charge of creating these product qualified needs definitions and then operationalizing it, meaning getting those to the sales reps at the right time. So before focus, what you would do is you'd probably get a list from the data science team of a bunch of product qualified leads, and then you'd manually disperse the list of PQLs to SDRs. The SDRs would say, why do I have this random list of leads? What do I make of this? And it's not the most effective way. But with Pocus, what happens is RevOps can visualize the different product qualified lead scoring in Pocus with models from either Pocus or the data science team. And they can see how the scores are calculated from usage data and customer fit data. And then if RevOps hears feedback from the sales team on why a score needs to be adjusted, RevOps can actually adjust the score because we have, without writing any code, because we have transparent and interactive scoring models. So that sales reps can feel trust in the score and know why it's a PQL. And then RevOps can also build workflows so that these PQLs show up in sales rep inbox or Slack or Salesforce at the right time. So sales reps are not overwhelmed by data and they know exactly why a PQL is a PQL. Yeah, thanks for walking over these two examples. Basically, these two personas, like the actual sales AE who can use it, for gathering data and doing intelligence on these opportunities. And then the second persona is the rep leader who can get the leads from the sales rep and then operationalize it into powerful metrics and numbers for financial purpose, right? So suppose some of the main users of the focus. Yeah, so we've been working with SDRs, AEs, account managers, CSN, sales leadership, but these are two common use cases of the Pocus product. And in your answer, you also talk about this concept of product qualified leads and sales assist. And these are very specific terminologies that I'm not sure like all people outside yeah. be familiar with. So yeah, could you mind just kind of briefly uh, explaining this concept for the uninitiated? Yeah, for sure. So a product qualified lead is a 
user or an account that has two things. It's one, they've showed really strong product usage, or two, they fit your ideal customer profile. So for those of you that are more familiar with SQLs or MQLs for a marketing qualified lead, it's similar to an MQL. But instead of looking at marketing data around what webinars did they attend, what content did they interact with, you're looking at product usage data. So what did they click? What did they share? How active are they in the product? And PQLs end up being a really strong indicator of what a good customer will be because they're already showing usage and love of your product for a salesperson to understand who to go after and when. And also, can you talk a bit about the concept of sales assist or sales services? Yeah. So sales assist is one of my favorite things to talk about because it feels like a superpower in a product-led growth organization. So companies like Dropbox started using hiring sales assist folks, and it feels like now they're popping up more and more with different names of self-services, product specialists, various different names. But the role of a sales assist person at a PLG company is what it's not like. It's to help or assist existing users on the product throughout their journey. So it's not aggressively selling. Um, it is how can I give the right touch point to help users solve a problem or get value out of the product. So it's a rule that's a mix between sales and support and enablement and training. Something really powerful about this role too is they're really good at providing feedback from the customer back to product or marketing or sales. So it's a very powerful role in product-like growth company. Yeah. You actually wrote a whole blog post about this like in November last year. So I'm sure yeah. into the show notes as well. For anyone who is interested in just learning more about this role, it seems like a very interdisciplinary function that brought between both the customer side as well, the support side as well, a bit more the latest as well, combination communication that's driven and technical expertise as well. So we started to see more, more and more of these roles being pulled up in graduate companies. Yep, definitely. So let's talk about the focus product roadmap a little bit. Joe team recently wrote this blog post on kind of the future roadmap, but focus for the rest of the year and ideally a long-term vision of the company as well. And the roadmap focused on support for multiple playbooks, predictive interaction, leadership reporting, and purpose-built tooling for customer success and marketing. But yeah, good to mind just touching on these product initiatives and giving a vision of how the future for focus and product-based sales will be for next year. For sure. Our high-level vision is to bring the power of data to non-technical teams. And so what does this mean from a technical perspective in terms of how this informs our product roadmap? This is where the topic of the modern data stack can come in. So for product and data and engineering teams, the modern data stack is the best thing since sliced bread. It's super powerful, lots of tools popping up. But what happens is the go-to-market teams are left behind in realizing any benefit from the power of the modern data stack. So at Tokus, we believe that in this future vision, the modern data stack should be and will be as important to sales and marketing and customer success and ops as it is to data engineering and product. And every, com every role in every company will realize the benefit of this new data. So our longer-term vision and our product roadmap all relates back to the fact that we want to unlock the data warehouse 
extra go-to-market team so that they can realize these benefits. So they're at the stage that we're at with being able to tap into the data warehouse and make it accessible and actionable for non-technical users. There's an infinite amount of things that we can build. Yeah. So I've been talking about this for a while, but the exciting things in our near-term product roadmap are one, more around predictive analytics for PQL scoring, and also making more purpose-built tooling for sales leadership and customer success and marketing. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that part about the modern data stack, which is, have been very popular in the past one or two years or so. I'm curious, like, from a product partnership part of view, full focus, figure out partnership solution with some of these modern data stack vendors. And if so, like, how does that look like? Yeah. Definitely. Yes. We've already behind the scenes started doing a little bit of that. There's a lot of opportunity to integrate with the data warehouses and companies like DBT. And so we absolutely are thinking through that. Perfect. And in the end of that talk post to share a PSL, it was a the lie that I realized, which is said that product service platform will be a key component of new stack for the modern growth stack. So I suppose that do you also have conceptualize a new stack just for the market team, right? Just borrow some of the principles mostly from the data stack. And yeah, so yeah, definitely excited to see more of that. Yeah. Be, be created. Definitely. Now, let's take off your product head and put on your CEO head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any understood startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are aligned with focused values? Yeah, so hiring is one of the most important jobs of a CEO and where I spend the bulk of my time. I think a lot of early stage founders don't realize how much time is spent on sourcing and recruiting and interviewing and everything into hiring. We put a lot of time in the interview process to make sure that folks are aligned to our values. And I think a good way of doing that is not only through the traditional interview, but through take-home challenges and case studies and reference calls. But we definitely test for the values in all of these ways of interviewing the candidate. So an example is one of our values is that everyone must be a humble overachiever. So if you meet a team, everyone is extremely skilled, very qualified, best in class of what they do. And it's because we want to build the best product, the best company, the best team. Um, so everyone's really freaking good at what they do. But no one has an ego. And so what this means is that because everyone's super humble, no ego, A, there's no problem that's too big or too small for anyone. Someone can be really senior and get into the weeds or someone can be really junior and have to think high level. So it's no problem is too big or too small and it creates a really good culture for collaboration. And so we make sure that we're testing for that. Is this people, is this person best in class of what they do? But also are they humble and can they get rid of their ego to get the job done? Yeah, how do you actually test for that? Like, how do you actually test for humility in an interview? Yeah, so this one is pretty obvious, especially in references. When you ask references, how do other people work with them and what do they think of them and how do they get along with their team? It's pretty easy to surface if someone is has a big ego and is difficult to work with and doesn't want to do a task because it's beneath them. That is pretty simple to surface. I see. Yeah. And talk about some of these values of focus. 
I'm curious at the early days, like how did you and Isaac come up with these cultural values for your company? Hiring is very adjacent to culture, right? Cultural values. Yep. How did you, you know, come up with these values and at the first place to think about like how the company might go when people apply for it? Yeah. So when Isaac and I were working together for that three month period in the class, we weren't just testing hypotheses for the idea of a product we want to build or a company. We were also testing, do we align with each other's values and the way that we work and the way that we see the world? So after even just three months of working together, it became very clear and what was important to both of us. And so we had a conversation around what are these things? How do we codify them? And that came down to things like humble overachiever, but also being lighthearted and not taking yourself too seriously and being fast, but intentional and being inclusive and having a growth mindset. And a lot of these things that we related to each other and we knew we wanted to work with others in the first five employees ended up also having these values. We're actually doing more of a reset of these values with our founding team of now we're at 16 in our offsite to mm-hmm. make sure gut check are the do these a lot if there's something that we want to carry from 16 people to thousand people in the future. I see. So these values are like constantly being iterated and experimented, being updated by time as as company grows. I'd say it's probably two iterations. <laughs> so first is from I and I, and now there's going to be another iteration with the founding core team. And then I would love that this stays the same for the future as we grow to hold ourselves accountable and honest. Yeah. And you said the company sounds 16 people, right? And yeah, I believe like the first career, the team mostly on a technical side, but I but focused hiring for the founding GTM team, if I'm correct. Yeah, would mind sharing a little bit more details on that? Yeah, so we definitely were hiring just engineers for a very long time. And we just started building up the go-to-market team. Our earliest hire was a head of marketing. She is absolutely incredible. And this was not a common thing to do. People were confused why my first early go-to-market hire was a head of marketing. I actually got this from Barr. And I worked closely with her head of content and communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw the importance of category creation from the very early days. Mm-hmm. Creating very value-add content. We wanted to create a community to build the category with the community. Mm-hmm. And so I focused a lot on marketing before anything else. Not in the marketing sense saying like account-based marketing or demand gen, more building really valuable content for our community. And so that was the non-traditional thing that I did that R also did at Monte Carlo. And now we're getting to the point where we are building out our go-to-market team. I'll say our go-to-market team, at least in the near term, will always be significantly smaller than the engineering team, just based on how technical our product is. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to talk about content, community, and categorization in my next two questions, because this is like your bread and butter and like your heavy focus, the growth strategy that focus has been doubling down on. Focus has invested a lot of effort in community like grow via vibrant Slack community and a weekly newsletter. How has your team been able to create a valuable and authentic space for people to share best practices, advice, and frameworks? Yeah. So community, building the product-led sales community has been my favorite part, one of my favorite parts in building Focus. How the 
product-led sales community originated was last July, I started a Slack group with 20 go-to-market leaders at product-led growth companies. And I observed the type of conversations that were happening organically between these 20 people. And there were consistent themes like, how do I set up a PQL? What is sales assist? What does sales compensation look like in a product-led growth world? And it was very, my job, facilitated the first AMA with one of my investors. People were very excited to learn more about product-led sales from sales leaders. And everything happened organically from there. We focused more on how do we provide value for people and help educate, but help answer questions, give them an authentic space to ask questions. And then from there, people invited their friends and peers and bosses. And now there's over 1,400 people in the community. And so something that was that helped us through this is we always thought about quality over quantity. We spent time, how can we add value in an event or an AMA or a Slack discussion versus how do we get more people in the community? So that was, it's been an incredible experience so far and very blessed to have met all of these incredible people that are in our community. These AMAs happening very frequently, right? Every week or bi-weekly. And you always bring yeah. top sales, rev ops, and GDM strategists from like software companies that were not for PSG. So I'm sure like a lot of people follow valuable wisdom from those AMAs. Yeah, it's been awesome. Like at the beginning, it was a small group of people and now it's got to grow organically into this bigger 1,400 people community. Looking ahead, is there any, I guess, strategy that you and the focus team have been thinking about to sustain the, the scalability of the community? Yeah, definitely. So we think of our community as a product. And it's the same type of thing where you're going and you learn from your users instead of the users of a product, it's the users of a community. And you're going to figure out what are their needs? What are their pain points? How can I solve these pain points? How can I experiment with different initiatives? So we're experimenting with events and activities and discussions versus experimenting with product features. And then we're testing those hypotheses and constantly iterating. So we think of our community as a product, constantly learning, constantly um, evolving. Things happen like we needed to create a community code of conduct and we started to add community ambassadors. So there are little things that you can do as you go from 20 people to 1,400. And we have lots of cool things coming in the future that I can't share just yet, but we have big community strategy vision in our near-term future. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And related to community building is also some of your work on product and category creation. And in Woodbookers, you're already like this, creating this whole new category of product-led sales. So what have been some of the unique challenges associated with category creation and how have you been thinking generally about evolving a category, community, and a product all simultaneously? Yeah, so building the category and community and product all at once has been a huge unlock for us. It is one big feedback loop where we'll learn something from community members about how they think through product qualified leads. And then that informs how we think about category creation for defining a product qualified lead. Then that informs how we actually build PQLs into our product group. So we got a lot of pushback from people creating this all at once. Mm -hmm. um, it was not the normal thing to do, but it ended up being the best thing that we could have ever done for Pocus and our community and our product. 
because we then get to build a category and a product with community members. I almost like to call it community-led category creation. And there, the challenging part I'll get to is in the early days, things are constantly evolving and changing and pivoting. And so we just need to be agile and continue to learn with our community. So for example, we've already evolved the definition of product-led sales from July to this July. And that just happens through listening to our community and constantly trying to figure out what is the most value we can to them and the broader category of product and sales. Thank you for sharing that context. You're talking about that challenge of things evolve and you need to be very agile and adapt, right? And given the multitude of feedback from the community, how do you prioritize the one that matters the most? To incorporate it into your product roadmap. Yeah. That is a question that every company needs to figure out and everyone faces. And I think that's the hardest problem that I face is prioritization. Uh, we know there's a lot we can build and we need to make sure that whatever the step one is the right decision before moving on to step two. And so we are listening. We listen to our customers. We listen to our community. We listen to future prospective customers and figure out what is the most need to have product right now versus nice to have. And always taking that ship and innovate approach also with our product to say, let's build the MVP, let's build the solution that we can get out in two weeks. And if we can validate our hypotheses, then we'll iterate and make it more advanced. So it's constantly listening and iterating. Perfect. Back to ship and iterate. That model that you can use and apply both the company as well as community as well as the product. So we talk a bit about working with employees, working with the community users, working with your enterprise customers. And then the last group I'm going to talk about is working with investors. Focus has raised up to $23 million in total funding to date from top tier VC firms such as Co-Tier Management, First Rock Capital, Box Group, and a host of very well-known angels in products data, community, and company building sectors. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Yeah. So I'd say you want to work with investors who you can trust and who are deeply passionate and knowledgeable on the same space as you, as what your company is. For me, I find value in having a good relationship with our investors who I feel like I could tell the good, bad, and ugly. And I can share wins, but also areas where I need to learn. And so that was a big thing. And then second is being really knowledgeable about product and growth and product and sales. So our seed investor was the sales leader at Stripe. Our Series A investor has invested in every PLG company under the moon. And so for them, it felt really good and natural to work together because I trusted them and they could bring in real insights into the space. So I would just recommend trust and folks who understand what you're building. I see. Five people who have the credibility of history working in the space and then as well as who we can have a working relationship with who not just be there in the good time but also in the downtime as well. Exactly. I'm curious like the fact that you learn a lot about venture capital back in Stanford I suppose that also helped a little bit with this whole fundraising process of 
knowing what's the incentives like for people on the other side of the process. And yeah, can, if you can definitely sharing a little bit about that psychology that go into the, the process. It, that's definitely true. Uh-huh. Understanding what it's like, quote unquote, on the other side of the table. I'd say investors, especially at the early stage, are looking mostly at, is this the right team to solve this problem? And is the problem space big enough to be a multi-billion dollar business? And is there some sort of unique wedge or perspective or insight that no one else has? So I could understand that from their perspective. And it's also a lot about storytelling and making sure there's a lot of cool things happening day to day at Pocus that I found really cool. My co-founder might find really cool. But what investors sometimes want to hear is the big picture story. So just making sure that your storytelling aligns to what investors are also excited to hear. Yeah. Thanks for emphasizing on that important storytelling and how narratives shape decision. Yep. So I want to round up our main conversation on a personal note. One of the catalysts that drove you to start Pocus is the fact that there are very few female founders, especially in the sales and data space. What advice could you give to a smart, driven female operator who wants to take the leap of founding her company? Yeah, I love that. I would say two things. One, just do it. Women tend to statistically have more imposter syndrome or verbalize it more than men when it comes to things like being in leadership positions or starting their own company. So I think it's important to acknowledge that and then move on and don't let it take over everything. Don't let it stop you. So to just, this, it's, it takes more, it's scarier to think about doing it than to just do it. Another thing that I often say to people that, to younger women who are asking me about the founder experience, I always like to say, what is the worst thing that can happen if you spend three months ideating on something? The worst thing that happens is it leads to nothing or your startup doesn't work. But you'll have learned a ton and you'll be in a better position for the next step of your career. So my takeaway is always just do it. Start talking to future customers. Start talking to people, experts in the field. Start jotting things out on paper or just write that first line of code versus thinking about whether or not you should do it. To that part, like I think this limited downside and unlimited upside of starting a company to your part about, you know, what's crazy, literally nothing. Even it just start up fair, you can learn so much of this skill set that give a lot of career capital. And then it seems like yep. you need that more opportunity here, given for someone who already started a company. Yep. <laughs> Alexa, this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, in which I'm asking you three rapid fire questions and then you provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the product by sales community whose work you admire. There are so many people. <laughs> Three is not enough. But I would say first would be Kyle Puyar at OpenView. OpenView has been really awesome at coining the term of product-led growth and writing a lot of valuable content and started to write more about product-led growth and sales. So I've loved learning with Kyle in the community and reading the content that he puts out. 
Second would be Melissa Ross, who's a product-led sales leader at Clockwise. She has been a very early believer in Pocus, and a lot of her methods for product-led sales have informed our community, have informed the category of product-led sales, and have informed our product room. And lastly, I would say Aaron Geller at QuickNode. He's now been at three really fast-paced PLG companies, QuickNode and Cypress and DigitalOcean, where he stood up product-led sales and PQLs there before product-led sales is even a term. So he's been a wealth of knowledge to help us figure out best practices and frameworks. Perfect. I'll be sure. Number two, share one piece of advice that you would give to sales strategists who want to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, it'd be similar to the advice I just said to giving to other women who want to think about being an operator or founder is having that bias towards action. So especially in the early days, think about execution rather than thinking. So it's the example of if you want to get in front of a bunch of go-to-market leaders, but you don't have the network, then don't try to think through buying a tool to help you go through a sales process. Think about what are the, all the scrappy ways that I can get in front of these people? Who do I know that can connect to me? What is something creative I can do? What is something creative I can say? So it's being scrappy and ha- having a bias towards action. Yeah. Yeah. I think that making that sort of mental shift from strategizing to being scrappy is, is like the, the biggest mental challenge. You actually have to be in the crowd, being in the arena, doing the work not just conceptualizing ideas. And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage GTM teams on Twitter. What would you tweet about? Yeah, that would definitely depend on my mood. My, my tweet persona can change based on the day. But as of right now, I would say I'd probably pose a question around how these go-to-market teams are thinking through product-led sales and data. I love learning from others, and that would be a really good opportunity to just compare and contrast notes amongst various go-to-market teams and ask a ton of people at once. So Alexa, I really enjoy our conversation today, learning about your personal background growing up in Philadelphia, your education at Vanderbilt studying engineering science, your time working in consulting at KPMG, your experience at data mana leading search strategy operation, your time at uh, doing MBA at Stanford GSB and how the seed idea was focused was being led and your current journey with focus creating the new categories of product sales develop an end platform to bring the power of data to more non-technical users various lesson and wisdom related to community building category creation as well as generally high level of engaging more women to become fathers in the future I'd be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes. And listeners can have a chance to take a look at and follow the journey of focus as they're interested. So yeah, Alexa, I really enjoyed and hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. It was so nice chatting with you. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter 
or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.